Hi, this is Patty Lapone. This is Allison Janney. This is Matt Balmer. This is Donna Murphy. This is Nia Vardalis. This is Jesse Tyler Ferguson. This is Beanie Feldstein. I'm Octavia Spencer. This is Ben Platt, and you're listening to Little Known Facts with my favorite person on the planet, Alana Levine. A-OK. Welcome to Little Known Facts, a podcast where you will hear unfiltered, raw, honest, and uniquely funny interviews with artists you love as they talk about the art they love to make. I'm your host, Ilana Levine. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. Hey, I heard you need an inspiration. He's a lot of and friends with some revelations. everyone. New episodes of Little Known Facts drop every Monday, and you can find them on your favorite podcast provider. Also, if you go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com, you'll find behind-the-scenes photos, videos, and interviews, and lots more on the gallery page. And if you are loving these intimate, candid conversations with all the artists who come on the show, please head over to the contributions page. I depend on these donations to continue to bring you these interviews every week. So if you love the show, please donate. My guests today, Cynthia Nixon and Laura Linney, are starring in The Little Foxes on Broadway and were both nominated for Tonys this year for their stunning portrayals of two Southern women who are polar opposites in personality. It is known that Laura was cast first as Regina, and it was she who suggested that she and Cynthia trade off playing the two sisters-in-law in the play Regina and Bertie. The idea that both Cynthia and Laura can make this role switch seem effortless and seamless is a testament to the craft and work ethic these two actresses share. Cynthia and Laura are both daughters of single moms. They grew up in New York City, latchkey kids. Both grew up in theatrical families with a deep focus on intellectual curiosity. There are so many fascinating similarities in their stories, and in many, many ways it was inevitable that these two shining lights of the theater would face each other on stage and become theatrical forces and opponents in this stunning production of Lillian Hellman's The Little Foxes. First up is my interview with Tony nominee for 2017, Laura Linney. A-OK. My guest today is Laura Linney, and she has 
gathered accolades for over 40 films since she graduated from the Juilliard School of Drama, among them The Truman Show, You Can Count on Me, Love Actually, Kinsey, The Squid and the Whale, Hyde Park on Hudson, The Savages, Genius, and most recently, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. On stage, she has starred on Broadway in Six Degrees of Separation, The Crucible, Honor, Uncle Vanya, and Sight Unseen. On television, Tales of the City, and four seasons as the hilarious and heartbreaking Kathy Jameson on The Big Sea. Downton Abbey fans know her as the face of Masterpiece Theater. She has won four Emmys, two Golden Globes. She has had several Oscar and Tony nominations. She moves seamlessly between theater, film, and television, and she remains one of the most down-to-earth, generous, warm, and kind human beings I know. Welcome, Laura Linney. Oh, Alana, thank you. I know. It must be a lot (laughs) to kind of hear only one third or quarter of your actual body of work at this point. It's actually nice to be reminded. Yeah. Because, you know, that's not what you take with you every day. I mean, you take with you what's not working at home, what you need to deal with, what's happening, what's not happening. I'm always a little taken aback when I hear someone read something like that because I'm like, oh. Well, I'm here to remind you, like you've done a lot of work. (laughs) Thank you. And maybe the laundry was left unfolded when you left the house. Yes, it was. (laughs) You betcha. Um, Speaking of home, you grew up in New York. So I have two different images in a way from the world of film of what growing up in New York is like. There's the Witt Stillman version and Mm -hmm. then there are the kind of more bohemian kids. And I'm wondering... Which was I? I had a, a strange good upbringing because it, it, you know, got me here. Here you are. But You're here on I Little am. Known Facts. Oh, here I am. But my parents divorced when I was six months old. I grew up with my mother, and she was a private duty nurse at Sloan Kettering Hospital, and she worked 12-hour shifts at the hospital. So she worked very, very hard, and I was on my own a lot. Well, um, six months. That's young. You know. Yeah. That's, <laughs> that's amazing. That's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I was a latchkey kid. Right. You know, and there were many of us. During that time, it was not unusual for kids to be, you know, out and in, hanging out in Central Park after school and getting to school by yourself. What part of the city? 64th between 1st and York, okay. near, near the hospital. It was a different type of New York where most stores were privately owned. There were small businesses everywhere. And they knew the neighborhood. Like everyone knew that there was this nurse who had this kid. And, and they all sort of made sure I was okay and how you doing and... Rocky Graziano lived in my building, which was a riot. So, and he was always like, you know, anybody bothers you, you tell me Uncle Rocky, he'll come and give him a one and two. <laughs> and he dated, he dated twins, which I loved. Were they identical? Yeah, they were identical twins with like long blonde hair and they wore cowboy hats. And he would put one hand in one back pocket and one in the other and sort of, you know, manage them up and down the street. It was hysterical. Oh but I loved him. He was yes. very, very sweet to me. Uncle Rocky. He was Uncle Rocky. You know, and I felt, consequently, I felt very protected. Yeah. But, you know, the neighborhood sort of looked out for me and uh, made sure I was okay and got worried if I they didn't see me after school. And, a mm-hmm. nurse and your father was a playwright. Mm-hmm. That's such an interesting coupling. Was your mom... Well, it didn't last. <laughs> it was so interesting. It, it was, so, it was yeah. such a weird coupling that it, it didn't last. Were they married for a number of years before? Oh, no. No. No, no, no. I think they were married in total maybe a year and a half, maybe, if that. My mother is and was beautiful. I'm not surprised. I mean, well, no, but stunning and and smart and clever and um, artistically curious and Southern and warm and, 
And my father was sexy and erudite and kind of brilliant in his own way. And they were just wildly attracted to each other. Do you and know how they met? I think the story goes, my mother was the nurse at a summer stock theater. And he was one of the actors at the theater. But they were married so briefly. And I really know very little about their relationship because they then, you know, sort of uh, didn't like each other at all. <laughs> so you were caught in the middle of I was. that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And here and we they are. tried. They really yeah. tried. I mean, my mother really tried to make it okay. And they, they both did in their, in their own way. But I think I saw them in the same room three times in my life. Yeah. yeah. That's intense. Yeah. They were both very, very intense people. So your mom... Although she was a nurse, was obviously, mm-hmm. as you just said, culturally astute mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. interested. Mm-hmm. Were you a child actress? No. When did that passion become it, unleashed well, inside you? It as started it as a child. I mean, it started, I was in all the school plays and, you know, my imagination would sort of keep me company most of the time. Mm-hmm. And, and I would go to museums a lot. You know, I'd have nowhere to go after school, so... You know, museums were sort of a great thing about growing up in New York City. So I was at the Frick a lot, and I was at, you know, the Met. It was all free at that time. And, you know, so I'd just wander around. And um, and I had a lot of really good friends and would stay over at their house a lot. And But young, very young. And then it took me a very long time to admit that I wanted to be an actress, a very long time. I think I was also surrounded by a lot of... Um, people who would who would say quite brashly and god bless them you know i'm going to be an actress mm-hmm. and i i just didn't quite know how to take that information because right. i think i had grown up around my father and watching to see and i saw how hard it was and and i sort of felt it was something i had to earn so i worked backstage for a long time i can remember sitting in a car in a parking lot telling my mother um when I was applying to colleges, that, that I you know, wanted to be an actress. And I was terrified to tell her. And they all knew. Both my parents were really wonderful about neither encouraging or discouraging me. Did you and grow up going to tons of theater yes. in the city? Yeah, I sure did. I would get, like, tons of tickets. That was Christmas present. Do you, you remember know? early plays that you saw? Well, that... Pippin was the first show that I saw. Um, I named my dog Pippin. Yeah, well, my childhood dog. Very Same good. thing. Yeah, yes, you know, that just stays with you for the rest of your life. You know, I remember the original chorus line. I remember the magic show. I remember um, the production of Vanities that happened oh, downtown. Wow. Um, Diamond Studs was a musical that was <laughs> down there. Just wild, wild. I don't believe I know that things. one. Yep, yep. I loved it. And then I saw a lot of regional theater also because my dad was doing a lot of that type of work at the time, so I would tag along with him. Was he a successful working playwright already as you were growing up? I don't think he ever felt successful. Yeah, no, I don't think he did. He was certainly in it, and he was fighting to be in it, but I don't think he ever really enjoyed, um, I don't think he quite realized how how well liked he was and how good his stuff was. And so he always struggled with that. It was hard for him. Did um, he come from an artistic family? No, his father was a doctor. But my grandmother always wanted to be an actress, although, of course, at, during that time, we were never allowed to do such a thing. Would you go to the South a lot growing mm-hmm. up? Yeah, because both my parents are from the South. So my mother's family was from southern Georgia, and my grandmother was originally from North Carolina, and as well as um, my, my father's family goes back into North Carolina for many generations. So I'm the first Yankee, literally. 
Do they treat you differently? Or? My mother's family sure did. <laughs> when I was little, they sure and Laura, did. And Laura's the coming Yankee. from New York. Well, it's true. I talked funny, and you know, I didn't go to church every Sunday, and you know, I was I was different. You were. I was different. I'm so intrigued by this idea of his not feeling successful. This is a mm-hmm. man who has published so many plays. They're in anthologies. He has a theater named after him. Did and, that happen in his lifetime? No, no. It happened right after he died. Oh. And nothing on the planet would have made him happier than that. Nothing. And when, after he died, I was doing um, a play called Time Stand Still while he was dying and, and when he died. And I was able to flip the switch on my theater marquee when they, they dimmed the lights for him on right. Broadway. I don't think he would have ever thought that that would ever happen because he never had a Broadway success. Ever. Did you ever do one of his plays? In college, I did. Where did you go to college? I went to Northwestern for one year, mm. and then I transferred to Brown. That's hard to transfer. Was Northwestern was just not the right fit for you? It wasn't. I think it's a great school, and I, I love the acting program there. There, there was a, a teacher there named David Downs who I just adored, but I just wasn't comfortable there for some reason. I just I, I missed the East Coast, and I it was a big university, and I was confused. We all go to college too young. You know, yeah. That gap years are, I yeah. feel like the first year of college should really be the gap year traveling, you, probably finding might. yourself, or yeah. working, and then kind of going, yeah. okay. Yeah. Now I know. So at Brown, did you make friends in I the did. arts that are still people in your Absolutely. life? Yeah. There's a, a big theater mafia from Brown. Yep. So when you think about the place that you began learning how to work as an actor, I mean, I'm sure you collect many things along the way that you take with you. I think it was sitting in rehearsal rooms and watching my dad's stuff being done. Mm. I think it was just being very young and just watching and you just sort of could see things come together. You could see someone, you could see people go through their own process. You know, and to me, they were all like gods up there, and they were probably 19, 20 years old. Right. But to me, they were, you know. So I think it was, I think probably it was there. And I loved talking shop with my dad. I, I loved it. It he sounds was, he like... He was great at that. He was just, oh, he was great. You must miss that. Terribly, yeah. I bet. Yeah, a lot. You know, he was he was fantastic that way. So I'm sure, you know, a lot of it came from from his influence and being around him and then just doing it, you know, just doing it. It doesn't change. That's the thing that everybody, they think, you know, you get out of school and it's all going to change. And it, do, it doesn't, but the, at the core, it doesn't. So you went to Juilliard. I did. What made you decide to continue to study rather than go out there and begin your career? Because I had watched... I had watched a lot of these gods who were in my father's plays and and other theater people. I had watched these young women who were so spectacular as ingenues. Mm. They were so wonderful. And then they couldn't transition Mm. into a leading lady or to a character actress. It's when instinct dries up, they didn't know how to help themselves. And I thought, uh, uh, uh. I was like, I don't want to do this just... Because I never thought of myself as an ingenue anyway. Um, I sort Did of you get thought, cast as ingenue parts in the beginning? Occasionally. Not very often. Mm-hmm. You know? I mean, I think I'm really a character actress at heart. I mean, I Maybe. feel like that speaks yeah. to the longevity of yeah. your career because you're magnificently beautiful. Well. Um, I'm sorry this is a podcast. I feel like I'm cheating my listeners that they don't get to look at you right now. But I do. It's no. my podcast and I can. Anyway, that has allowed you 
to play a lot of different kinds of parts, also feeling like I'll play Abigail Adams and I'll do things that aren't just vanity-driven projects. And it's, you know, I I never quite know how to respond when someone goes, God, you let yourself look so bad in that. (laughs) Thank you. And I just... I just think, well, do people say that oh, out loud? A lot. You're so much better looking in person. I get that a lot. Like, why would you make people make you look that bad? <laughs> and I just think, but it's the, that's the part. I mean, I don't quite know how to respond to that when people say it, but I think they probably mean it as a compliment. So you so went yeah, to Juilliard. I did. I'm still very involved there. In what way? I'm on the board, and I, um, I take the fourth year students out individually for lunch and make them pay. See, see, <laughs> see how they're doing, you know. Because it's, um, you know, it's an intense period of time. And then you have to leave, you know, and you've, you've, for four years you've been such an ensemble. And then all of a sudden you're an individual. And it's, for me anyway, it was heartbreaking to not have, not to be a part of a group like that. Lorenzo's Oil was your yes. first film, right? <laughs> yes. As I looked at your resume, I have seen every single film or play oh, come on. that you have done almost. I mean, maybe there's one or two Ilana moments that I miss. I just thought it's incredible. I mean, Laura and I met, I think, in like 1990. We did a one act together called Forgetting Frankie yes, at the Manhattan did. Class Company. So that's a long time ago. Yeah. So either I saw something you were in or I was in something you were in <laughs> since then. It we was so fun. much fun. And then yeah. I remember we went out to L.A. because you were the first person I knew who had like a development deal. Oh, that's right. And we were at some hotel, right. I think, in like Universal right. Studios. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we could all order that, room service. All that craziness <gasps> that happened that I don't think that exists anymore. Flown out for auditions and then flown back. So you very quickly started getting work. Did that consistently continue basically since you've begun? Do it did. You... I don't know how, but it did. Yeah. You don't know how? Because people probably would like to know. I wasn't picky. Mm-hmm. I can tell you that. I was at the understudy at Six Degrees of Separation. Oh, I love that the, production yeah, so was, much. It was wonderful. I was there with all these very <laughs> jaded understudies who were really, you know, in right. the back room. They'd never listen to play. They, you know, they'd wait till they could leave. And I, I was just, I'd crawl up in the, in the catwalk and watch that play and watch Stocker Channing. Who was unbelievable. I think she's influenced me probably in ways she's not even aware of. Your co-stars, Gabriel Byrne and Liam Neeson and Ian McKellen and Paul Giamatti, Richard Gere, Steve Martin. It's impressive. Who are the women that you found guidance from? Joanne Woodward. I did a, a television movie with her and we became close and she was terrific. She was wonderful to me. And are there really things wonderful. that she said that resonate with you still? <laughs> or? Here's, here's a story. Okay. You're getting a story. Here's a good one. <laughs> All right. So I was in the worst production of Hedda Gobbler, Known to Man. It good was, for you. Yeah, yay. <laughs> it was really, really a troubled production. It was just, it did not work. They had updated it to the 1940s. You know, so everybody looked like Hedda Hopper. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like everybody looked great, but why don't you pick up the phone? Like you don't have to send a note. It was just that's crazy. Yeah, it was nuts. And the reviews were horrific. I think it was like off with her Hedda was the (laughs) was the top. Okay, well I have to say for that alone it was worth it. Sorry. And um, so and I was miserable. And it was like going to the theater every night and someone handing you a glass of sand and going Mm -hmm. drink up because it was three and a half hours of just. Not, not one moment worked. Not one second. 
and you would hear people, <laughs> you so know, sad. getting up and leaving, and you'd hear the seats flap, and oh my, oh my god, oh my god, oh my I'm god, so sorry, and you're Laura. like, oh, I have the opportunity to be in a classic play on Broadway, and you just think, I am, I am injecting the, you know, the animal that is the theater with a deadly virus. I'm just, <laughs> I am the example of, you know, why classical theater should not be done anymore, and. So I called Joanne. I was like, Joanne, I need your help. Like, I, I don't know what to do. This is a long run, and I need your help. So she came. God bless her. She came. And she, she, sat, she sat in the theater, and she watched it. And I went backstage after it was all over. You know, it, it felt like six months every right. time we did that play. <laughs> Seven days just, later, oh she came God. backstage. Seven days later, she came backstage. And someone knocked on the door and said, Miss Woodward will meet you in her car. I was like, oh, 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 okay, okay. So I... I got dressed and I, I jumped in her car and she was like, oh, dear heart, let's just go up to the apartment, shall we? And I was like, okay, great. So we went up to their apartment, which, you know, I remember in the, being in the elevator and going into the into their apartment and sitting down and I was waiting, 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 waiting for the pearl of wisdom to come from her. And she goes, well, there's nothing you can do. <laughs> and I looked at her, I was like, what do you? What do you mean there? I, I I thought for sure she was going to tell me something that right. would make things fall into place. Or, and she was like, there's nothing you can do. You just have to get through it. And I, 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 uh, ooh, okay. you know, my brain imploded. Oh, my God. When Joanne Woodward is like, mm, no, nope. sorry, nothing you can do there. <laughs> Chamomile or that, mint. That's right. <laughs> um, so I went back to the theater and I thought, how am I going to get through this? disaster of a production and and I thought okay what do I like I was like I like my dress I do like my purple dress that I wear and so I tried to have a relationship with the purple dress <laughs> and then every night I would give myself some task right like one night I pretended that my eyelashes would reach three feet ahead of me one night I pretended my ears were enormous just to do something to have some life because it was it was it was hard. It was hard going. That was hard. And when you're in a play on Broadway that Oof. is bad, Oof. and you're bad in it, and you know you know it. You just, people know when they're good or they're not. They just do. Oh, you just you feel terrible. You just want to turn to the audience and go, "I'm so sorry. I am so Dave. So is, is it Dave? Sorry, Dave. Listen, yeah, just twenty bucks. Uh, you know, honestly, yet. You survived. I survived. You survived. And, you know. Yeah, I survived a lot of plays like that, actually. A few, I had a few really clunkers. But look how you gave yourself, like, a little present each night. Yeah. I've had things yeah. like that where yeah. where it, it's not actually the play. It's the idea of still auditioning. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, Alana, I know you don't want to go. I talk to myself in third person. Yes. I'm like, yeah. if you do, when we're done... We're going to go, right? Like, I'll give I'm myself. Get you an ice cream. Totally. Like, uh, yeah, it's that simple. Yeah. And I literally, like a good little girl, I'm like, chocolate mint chip. Yep. It's really, I'm that easy. But it's really yeah. about little tricks. It seems to me, though, that if you do something for as long as you've done it, there have been many moments where you could have rested on your laurels. There's something really compelling about telling stories for you. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, sort of... My my big thing that I always try and keep in my mind is story first, story first, story first, story first. You know, daughter of a playwright, so yeah. story first, and then it's just connection for me to the material or to the to people working it. on it. To all of it, 
Who do you love to work with? Liam and I have worked together a lot on stage and on film. Liam and I did The Crucible together, and then we did Kinsey together right after that. So it was it was fun to go from sexually repressed to sexually liberated right. couple. It was very funny. Nice. Yeah. So and then Liam and I did Love Actually together and and we're very, very, you know, he's a divine, wonderful human being. And oh, then nice. I've had three troubled marriages with Gabriel Byrne. Mm-hmm. Um, on screen. On screen. Three of them. When you've been on film or doing films and television, when you segue back to theater, mm-hmm. do you feel like, wait, mm-hmm. I'm wearing the wrong shoes? Like, does it take <laughs> you a moment to kind of, or is it a very natural, fluid thing at this point? It's pretty, it's pretty good. Mm-hmm. It's, it's like, um, you know, it's sort of like visiting different countries, you know, and it's just always... Sometimes you wear those Holland clogs. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Which I love. That's right. But for me, there's nothing like walking to the coffee cup with pencils in it. And highlighters. Yeah, I can just breathe a little deeper. Mm. Do you think that you can learn how to act in a film in a classroom? You have to just do it. I mean, you can learn about yourself as much as you can, but more than likely you'll get on set and all that's going to just fly away. You know, it it all is like sand running through your fingers the first few times you do a movie. It's just over, and you're not aware of what's going to happen to your adrenaline when a camera is rolling or not rolling. Or Was Congo your first huge movie? <laughs> no, Tales of the City. That was yeah. a magnificent thing that happened yeah, to you. It was, and it, it changed my life. I was very, very intimidated by film and TV. It was really nothing that I thought I would work in. I... Just always assumed that I would be a, a theater actress, and right. those were your that, people. That were my peeps, and that's what I knew. And I didn't know anything about the film I and mean, cameras. I'm terribly camera shy. I always have been. How so, did you get that part? I aud- I auditioned, and I was originally being considered for another part, and then they called me in for Marianne, and it clicked. And, and it clicked. And a lot of those people are still very, very close friends of mine. And I named my son Armistead. You know, so his middle name is Armistead. Um, so, yeah, that was an important period of time. So when the Big C came around, the real beauty of that show to me was how deeply it could resonate in so many ways for mm-hmm. so many people mm-hmm. with unbelievable humor. Yes. That yeah. was the first. Yeah. Well, I, you know, and I, I've always really believed that, you know, comedy can be just a survival technique. I mean, it helps you get through the unfathomable. Mm. You know, when things are chaotic and scary and intimidating and threatening, it gives you something to hang on to. And it dispels all of that for a second. And my father was diagnosed with lung cancer when I was doing that show. And he died very, very quickly. And I think it was during our third season, second season, I don't even remember now. But if I had ever doubted the the comedy combination with yeah. a, a cancer story. When he was dying, it was completely confirmed because the craziest things happened. I mean, just crazy, crazy things. <laughs> he was talking in an archaic Appalachian accent for a long time after surgery because he just wasn't, his mind wasn't together. I mean, it, <laughs> right. it was, his uh, hospital bed didn't fit in the elevator. So we had to go uh, like a 45-minute journey through the hospital across a Christmas party the Santa Claus waved to us. My father's speaking in an Appalachian accent. I mean, it was just, it was nuts, but it was, it was just funny. And it, what it did was it just, it kept death at bay just for a little bit of time. And it, um, it, it made things clear all of a sudden. You've gotten married and had a little boy. Mm-hmm. Have you acted since your son was born? Yes. I went back to work sooner than I thought I would because Bill Condon, came to me and said, so when are you thinking about going back to work? He came over to meet the baby, and the baby was, I don't know, two months old. 
I said, well, I'm not really thinking about it. And this all went well. And here he is. And oh, my gosh. And so he said, okay, okay, okay. <laughs> and then he went away. And the next day, I got a phone call from my agent saying, Bill Condon has offered you a part in the, this movie called Mr. Holmes. <laughs> and it's filming in England. Mm-hmm. And it's Tomorrow. Ian, and it's with Ian McKellen. Great. And, all things you don't want you to know, do. You know, all things I don't want to do. And I'm a Sherlock Holmes fanatic. And I, Are you? you? Know, oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I just, oh. so I thought, well, if it's for a friend, it's a part where I'm playing a housekeeper. You love to I, clean. I love to clean. My baby weight was still very much right. on my being. I thought, well, that'll work. You know, my boobs are huge. And, you know, and I've always wanted to work with Ian. So I said, sure. You know, and Bill was like, look, we will completely, you know, I was breastfeeding and, you know, the baby was only four months old, I think. And it was it was terrific because it was. Did your husband get to go too? He came to visit for a while. Okay. Yeah. And it was it was great. And they just let me bring the baby. And he was, you know, became sort of a little bit of a mascot. So for the past two years, I've been doing like little things and stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's been really fun. It's been perfect. Because I'm I'm able to be creative in that way, and then you know I'm able to to not lose this time with him. It took you, me so long to have him. But, I know. You know. It's uh, I don't want to miss out on it. He was worth the wait. Oh yeah, he was worth. Well, the that's wait. the thing. You know, if someone had told me years ago, you know, not only will you actually have a child, guess what, but you're going to have that child, mm. that child. You know, that's what's. Uh, you know, it's amazing. You just, you never know where the wind's blowing you. You know, and I'm really sort of learning as it goes, you know. Yeah. I'm, you know, I'm a much older parent, so there's, I'm learning all of that, what that means. And means you're tired. It means I'm tired. And but elated. It, yeah. But it means, and I'm also weirdly calm. That's great. And I So I my, really both my it. children came with manuals. Yours did not. <laughs> did they not give that to you? Oh, I missed that. I'm so they sorry. I was old enough that I would just know. <laughs> It's not an easy life. Mm-hmm. And the fame aspect of it, I mean, that's one thing that, I've, that I don't have. And, and I'm so grateful. You're you know? not. I'm well known. Right. I'm not famous. Okay. What's you the know? difference? How would you describe? Um, I'm not part of the culture. You know, I'm not part of the tabloid conversation. Mm-hmm. I never was. I'm, you know, now I'm too old to be, but even, <laughs> even before I just, I sort of wasn't, you know, and I am recognized and people do come up, but it's very casual and people are very nice mm-hmm. and, you know, there's not a, it's not aggressive. No, no. You know, it's just, you know, I can go about and live my life and take the subway and, you know. It's, so you uh, do, you can go around New York, you can do oh, yeah. all the things you did before oh, yeah. movie stardom. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, I schlepped my laundry cart to the, to the Gristides this morning and got right. my stuff. <laughs> You know, there goes slugged it around. There goes Laura Linney. There she was. Um, as I said earlier, it's really your heart that leads, and I think that's what you embody every part with—just a humanity and a compassion, both for who you're playing and for the other people in this story. And you do it in life too. And I feel really lucky to know you and to oh, have had you Lana, here today. That's so kind. Thank, Thank you for you. being here My today. Pleasure. And now here's my conversation with Tony nominee Cynthia Nixon. The magnificent thing about Cynthia Nixon is the resume sort of exists and speaks for itself. What people don't and, and know. And that's what Google is for. That's what Google. That's it, why God made Google. God made Google. <laughs> yeah. We're going to talk about religion okay. in a little while. Okay. But I want to talk about yesterday. Yes. Yesterday, you and I, after you had sushi for the first time in a long time, yeah. went to see... 
Blackberry Child. Yes. A Sam Shepard play that we both realized while watching it we thought maybe we had seen, but in fact we had not. I think a Pulitzer Prize winning play, like a really important American play. Yes. Neither of us had seen it. So in a way, as, as ashamed as I was about that, I also felt like, oh my God, but we're getting to see it the first time together. And that was meaningful. The thing I always love to do with you, maybe more than with anyone else on the planet, is talk about what we just saw together. I feel like People don't do that anymore. They go well, over so quickly on to the next, and I feel like it's part of your religion. It is part of my religion. You know, and, and the thing about it is, you know, I feel like this is a segue into an important part of me, right, which is that my mother had me late, late for the time that she was living in the 60s. She was 36 when she had me. I was her only child. She wasn't planning on having children. I'm an only child, and she was an only child, Mm -hmm. and my father was an only child. You know, there was not a lot of, um, you know, my childhood that was kid stuff. There was a lot of, like, you're five now. Let's go see Stacey Keach in Hamlet. You know, there was a lot of of movies and plays. Mm -hmm. And... Partly maybe because I was way too young (laughs) for these things that I was seeing, but also because I think it was what my mother loved to do, we would go. But that was what we had to talk about. Right. We didn't talk about our feelings. No. We didn't talk about my imaginary friends. We talked about both of our imaginary people that we'd seen up on stage. And I started directing, you know, having been an actor since I was 12, I started directing, you know, maybe two years ago. And I felt like I was actually, I, I, I'm not really good at trying new things. I'm, not, I'm I like to stay in my comfort zone of things that I know I can do really well. Okay. Because another thing that my, neither of my parents were really any good at was sort of sitting there through, through children learning, right? And so I was expected to sort of do something well or like, oh, you know. <laughs> right. Don't the, – the, the, the learning process was really not a, not a happy place and we just sort of avoided well, it. Well, thank goodness you were a natural student. Yes, that's true. And or, I, or were you? Yeah. I mean I feel like, uh, you know, my wife Christine still um, – like I'm having my 50th birthday and I've invited one of my – Teachers and you know Christine is you know like some people would find it distasteful <laughs> to see their spouse around like an ex lover right to see right. that kind of you know bl- you know breath quickening blood you right. know flowing it's awkward that kind of like oh hi I haven't seen you in so long right that's for- the way I am around my teachers it's so Mister Bratsby is here I know that would have been she, mine she Mr. just Bratsby's she just would be mine Mister Bratsby Mister Bratsby at what age was this I was in sixth grade. Ah, an important time. An important year. In math. In math. I digress. You are having right, no, a birthday. So, Your teacher is coming. My teacher is coming. Uh, yeah. I mean, and, and, and Christine is like, oh, my, you know, really? Really? <laughs> and it's not so much that she, you know, doesn't see the appropriateness of, you know, on I'm turning 50 on my 50th birthday of having all these people there right. from, who are important in my life. life but she just of. doesn't want to see me around this person who shall not be named. Well, we won't name him, but, but her, we're, her, we're, her, she yeah. will not be named, but. I, who will have the great fortune of being at that soiree, will carefully watch. You'll scope her out, right? Well, also just to see, like, Cynthia's acting really weird. (laughs) She's not being herself. Why is she talking like that? Why is she she sweating? Dabbing her forehead like (laughs) that. Do you have big feelings or thoughts about turning 50? Is it something that you care about? Mm. Are you a big birthday celebrator in general? You know, I feel like before my wife came into my life, I was raised in in a fairly 
puritanical way, I guess, like very not not sexually, actually not sexually at all puritanically, but in terms of frugality, right, and working hard, right, and and that I think the way I was raised was, you know, you would never spend more money on anything than you absolutely have to, right, you know. I feel like in the narrative of your particular journey as an actress. Your mother loomed so large in that history, A, because she had been an actress, B, because she seems to have been quite a natural director. Well, this is what I was this is what I was sort of making my way to say before, which was that when I started directing, you know, pretty recently and pretty late in my life, um, I felt like I just had such an aptitude for it and it felt so natural to me. And I realized that in some ways I'm not really a like you meet people. And they just seem like a born performer. Hmm. And I have certain aspects that are like that, but many aspects not. And I feel like when I was younger, my family, there wasn't the, – the place for emotions in my family was not very clear. And right. so I think when I was really – when I was a, a, an early teenager and, and a teenager, I think that a lot of my pent-up emotion would, would come out in roles and I would get to cry or yell. But then you would get accolades right. for that. And paid. And paid and – right. I don't know. I think that in some ways the, the, the most important part of my personality is I'm a planner. Right. I'm always trying to think four steps ahead and what am I doing next week and what what are we going to be having for dinner? And do you know what I mean? It's like I'm not I'm not by any means a person who plays chess and thinks ahead, you know, like in that intellectual way. It's not strategic necessarily. It's not strategic, but it's practical. So 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 what so what I'm trying to say is I think, you know, one of the most important things about being an actor and maybe one of the most important things about being a human is to be in the moment, right? Mm-hmm. And I feel like I'm not all that an in the moment kind of a person. So how I'm too do busy you... planning. And right. so in a way, that's a director, right? And I feel like all of these years from a, like a tiny, tiny, tiny little age, you know, my mother tells a story about when I was three, she took me to The Sound of Music, which is like three and a half hours at Radio City, you know, grand palatial movie palace. And she was worried. It was like the first movie I'd ever seen. And she was worried I, you know, wouldn't have the attention span. And apparently I turned to her when the movie was over. And I said, no more? Right? Right. So she was like, I'm in. Wow. (laughs) So my question for you is, where does your dad fit in to this narrative? And how old were you when they got divorced? Well, you know, that's the funny thing about my parents. They were sort of bohemian. And they were very proud of their bohemianness. And so they actually didn't get divorced. Okay. And they separated when I was six after having been married for 15 years. But then they didn't actually get divorced until I was in college when my father decided to retire to Mexico. And he thought, if I die out of the country and I'm still married to this person, you know, the legal, the wills and it's all going to be confusing. Let me get divorced so that he's a planner. I mean, he's if if I'm a planner and my mother's a planner, my father was the super, super, super planner. So much so, you know, to the point of actually I, I, I see ways in which it – you know, prevents me from from being in the moment. But my my, I think my father's goal in life was to do everything he could not to be in the moment. 
because my parents were old and because they had me, like my mother was 36, my dad was 44, which at the time to have a child, like right. my mother would clip articles out of the paper about Cary Grant, be like, he's old and See? he's a dad and look how happy he is. Right. My picture of him, this could be completely made up. I, I feel like he always loomed large as this like Ernest Hemingway sort of character in my mind. Is there any truth to that in terms of if he were cast in a movie, what would he the was actor... Very, you never met my dad. No, he, he was, was in very, Mexico he from was the very time handsome. I met you. He sort of looked like Peter O'Toole a little bit. He always oh. had a mustache. And he served in World War II. And then he got married to a woman in Texas. Um, her name was Laura. And they had two children. I think they had a very... Very combative marriage. My father was a very angry, combative person, and I think his first wife was too. So you have two half-siblings. I do have two half-siblings. Did you know about them growing up? I did know about them because shortly before my parents separated, when I was, I guess, probably five, the younger of the two came out east, as they say in Texas, came out east to go to Harvard, and he was not in touch with my father because my father my father basically left Texas and left his family and his way his his thought about doing that was to take all the money he had and take half of it and give half of it to them and then they got divorced and my father was was chronically unemployed and was really terrible at paying his child support and he was almost always thrown in jail a, a bunch of times so finally things got so strained between him and his ex-wife understandably cuz i mean she was totally struggling on her own that really contact was lost did he reestablish a connection with those children when he was older or not you know as far i think his know? old his older son larry was too angry mm-hmm. whereas randy was 3 and he kept thinking there was a great dad out there somewhere and that what his mom was telling him about that man wasn't true. So all during our lives, Randy kept trying at different points to reestablish contact with us. So did you guys ever get so a then, chance so to then, sit and talk about it? And could you fill in gaps for him? It's very hard. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard. It's obviously a major thing in his life. As it, How could it not be? And when my dad was dying... Randy got Larry, his older brother, to come. And uh, actually, my dad is not really good at talking about his feelings or, you know, talking about anything emotional. But he did try to apologize to them. And he said, you know, I, I, you, you guys have, have made such, you know, such impressive lives for yourself professionally and personally. And, you know, I know that I was not that none of that is due to me, you know, right. and, and that it's really in spite of me. Right. And I just hope you feel so proud of that. And I'm so proud of you. Right. And um, and he said, and I'm just so sorry I wasn't there, you know, to write. And, um, and I think Larry, my older brother, who was the most angry of the two, said, yeah, it was kind of like a boy called Sue. <laughs> Which, if you know that country western song, which of course is a perfect thing to say to my dad because he loves Shel Shel Silverstein and right. he loves like it's the perfect it's country, but it's New York intellectual version of country, right? You know, it, it, you know, it's the story is about a, a a man who abandons his little son, and but first he gives him a girl's name so that everywhere he goes, the, the boy will have to fight for himself and will learn to be a fighter. Yeah. Which is why after we saw Buried Child yesterday, I was like, I am a Jewish girl from Tunic, <laughs> and there is nothing other than maybe someone I once knew had a couch like that. <laughs> and you were like, mm, no, 
Yeah, there's... a little bit like my dad sitting on the couch, <laughs> yeah. coughing with his emphysema. Yes. So how did you decide to raise your children Jewish? Well, I feel like growing up, so there were so many Jewish kids that were my social set and they were the, kind of the best of my social set. Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, Danny, I think, could not imagine having his children and not raising them Jewish. And I, I didn't have any problem with that. So now you have a third child yes. with your wife, yes, Christine, who did not grow up Jewish. Right. Is Max going to be raised differently? He, you know, I mean, I think so. So we have our our last child, Max, with uh, a, a male couple, right, with two gay men, um, one of whom is the donor and one of whom is the partner of the donor, and we don't really distinguish. And one of those guys is Jewish. I want to segue to a different topic completely, yes, which does have to do with rituals, uh-huh. but less religious. Yes, although the theater could be considered our religion yes, at the same time. I this is definitely. a very clunky segue. I don't know that people are aware that you have uh, almost, maybe you think I'm flattering you, but sort of an encyclopedic memory as well as knowledge of musical theater. This is a great passion of yours. It is a great passion. Um, Arguably my greatest passion. I would say that this is a little known fact that people may not know about you. (laughs) So growing up, were you like with the album cover, reading the lyrics within, listening to musicals? Well, you know, but, you know, at the time, you know, they didn't even have the the lyrics, you know. That's a kind of a later Sondheim thing because I'm I'm there with the album of like Promises, Promises. I can picture a chorus line when I think of my own. But there's no, but there's no lyrics, right? No, you're but, just right, holding it, just holding the album, right? And right. the story of, and, and there's the story of, the there's story a synopsis. Of. Sometimes there's a note by the composer. I mean, I'm picturing you in your room. There's the hair album. There's probably did you have nine? Accordion? You know, did I didn't have, all have of hair. I didn't have hair. No, you see, you see, you're a little later than me, because I also inherited a lot of my mother's favorites. Is that My Fair Lady and Camelot? My Fair Lady, yes. My mother's not a fan of Camelot, really, really. But yes, we had Camelot. She always says, you know, if Ma's heart hadn't died, he could have made that a good show. But he died in the middle. Yes, uh, uh, My Fair Lady definitely um, promises, promises. You're a good man, Charlie Brown. Mm. Big, big one for me. Um, wonderful town, South Pacific. But almost the most important one, Annie Get Your Gun. Annie Get Your Gun is sort of that Promises, Promises, and Charlie Brown are kind of the... The soundtrack of your childhood when you yes. think about... So do you have pre-show rituals? No. Do you have any superstitions? I mean, I have to say, I've, I used to have stage fright like at the very first preview and then I'd be fine. Right. But but as I've gotten older, like in my mid... You see, in my 40s, I got more stage frighty. Um, and so one of the things that I can't bear now, and I think I would be better – well, it's, it's getting better. But one of the things I can't bear is to stand off stage and wait. Oof. I hate that. And it's not anything – it's pure animal fear. It, there's not anything I'm literally afraid of. I'm just terrified and I have a hard time holding my ground and not bolting. Right. So, so what I do, like when I was doing wit, yeah. when I was forty-seven or eight, something seven, I can't remember. They were really great about that, and even without my having to really say it to them, the stage managers were very intuitive about it. And I had to basically come downstairs in my shaved head and my baseball cap, and my little horrible. Uh, hospital gown, and they had to quickly attach me to an IV pole, 
However, they did that. I don't even remember now. Oh, they really did. They really <laughs> put the they needle punct- in your arm. They would puncture right every night. Vein. Method. But what they would do is they would have it really. They wouldn't call me until they were actually literally ready to go. So you were not at places ten minutes before. So places right. So was- I kind of stepped. I I kind of came backstage. They hooked me up, and they and that and, and I the just show and I barely I barely slowed down. Do you know what I mean? Maybe I would wait for 20 seconds. But I, yeah. That was not true earlier in your career. Not at all. And I remember one time, I don't know, I don't know. I remember one time when I did my very first Broadway show when I was 14, Blythe Danner was the leading lady and I just worshipped her. The Philadelphia story. The Philadelphia story, right. And um, I was on at the very top of the show, Blythe and I and Meg Mundy, who was playing our mother. We were sibling sisters. And um, we arrived at places, and it was 8 o'clock, and the house was strangely all in place. And so the stage manager was like, okay, we're going up. It's 8 o'clock, and we're going up. Now, no show on Broadway. I mean, no show goes up at 8 o'clock. Every show goes up at 8. 8.05, yeah, you know. And Blythe Danner was so hilarious. She was like... There is no show in New York that goes up at 8 o'clock. I am going back to my room. Please call me at 8.05. <laughs> That's right. It was Tell just, him. It was just hilarious. Oh, my God. There's so many things I want to say. First of all, well, we can talk about auditioning in a minute. I'm sure you probably I still audition. Me. Of Do course, you? Of course I still audition. Not for theater. I auditioned for a casting director the other day, honey. What? <laughs> Well, I they put think, me on tape. Listen to me. I she, she was like, "Hey, you're good." <laughs> I am now going to be your agent. I'm sorry because there's not a lot. I'm no. Sure the of. director wasn't in New York, and right. I hate putting myself on tape. I hate it. Right. So I would rather go in a room and have a casting director do it. Give me feedback and film me, and I don't have to. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Fair enough. I can't imagine that that's true in the theater. I imagine at this point you've done enough <gasps> roles that you wouldn't have to read. I, I right. Think I don't are more have to. I don't built have around to, you. Right. Now. I don't have to read for things in the theater. Although I did some years ago, and I think this would still be the case. Like, I can't really sing, but I have had a couple of musical auditions. Because no one would ever cast me in a musical without hearing me I sing. Remember in and, and actually, Who? actually, after having sung, no one has cast me in a musical after ha- having heard me That's sing. That's weird. But, yeah. I don't think that should be true. First of all, I've seen you sing in a benefit. Yeah, no, I you believe... don't. If you have a show, you don't want me singing in that show. I remember in the last night of Ballyhoo, the Alfred Urey play that I replaced you yes. in. There was a little bit of singing at the top of the show. Lala Levy is uh, the show opens and she's decorating the Christmas tree. Should she sing a Christmas carol? Yes, I can't even and remember. I believe and and this is one of the only times I went up on stage. And forgive me, I may be misremembering the carol because yes. the Levines did not sing many of them, so I don't have like a whole bevy of them in my mind. Right. But I believe the lyric was fa la 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 <laughs> la 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 la. And I went up. Wow. <laughs> it was like the only time I've gone up on stage. And, and did thought, you just go like, I had a little dreidel. <laughs> Hanukkah, Hanukkah. But I thought this is this is a very scary moment. And there's the story of the understudy who they're like, you're on. And she's like, okay. And literally they they go back to the dressing room and the window is open and she's gone out of the window and back to Idaho and never been heard from again. So you were saying that you do still audition. I do. Do you have thoughts about auditioning, I advice do. I about a, auditioning? I have a lot of thoughts about auditioning. Tell me what comes to mind. Well, I guess... Do you enjoy it? I, I really do enjoy it. I don't enjoy it 
all the time. Um, this one for the casting director. I yes. really did not have a great time at that one. Okay. Was there singing? Was there singing? No, involved? there was just a lot of comedy. All right. Ugh, comedy is hard. Comedy, comedy, comedy. But I do like in, uh, auditioning. And I, I have to say, I do have a lot of opinions about it. Three things, I guess. One is that your audition is only, unless you're superwoman, your audition is only as good as the people in the room. Like you can't go into a horrible room of bored, closed down bureaucrats disguised as directors and casting directors and producers right. who have no receptiveness about them right. and try and break through that. It's almost impossible. You're only as good as the person you're dancing with. So if you have one of those experiences, just do your best to remember it's not you. It's like you had a bad sexual experience. You know how you are in bed. You're right. not bad in bed. Right. It wasn't you, honey. Right. So let yourself off the hook if you have an experience like that. But also do your best to be prepared but to then be in the moment because the thing that a director is looking for, they're looking for someone who's right for the part, first of all, that's vaguely the right age, that's vaguely the right temperament, that would go well with the other people that they have already cast and are planning of ca on casting. But also they're looking at someone who can respond to direction. So it's like if you walk in there and you all alone do your A minus – and then they give you direction and you do the exact same A minus, you probably won't do as well as someone who goes in there with a B minus and then takes an adjustment and then goes up to an A minus because you think like, I can have an effect on this person and this person will hear me. Right. And the other thing I want to say is the hard thing about an audition is we care so much and we feel like particularly if, you know, we don't have a lot of them, which most of us, we don't have a lot of them. And the older we get, we get, for right. women, we get less and less right. of them. So we feel like it has to really, we have to make it count, right. you know? The thing about it is it's so uninteresting to watch someone come into a room and be nervous. Do you still get nervous? I do still get nervous. I just try and do the work, but I also try and, I, I, I try and remember that, I, I would really probably like this job that I'm auditioning for, mm -hmm. but they would also really like to find someone. You have the film James White, which just came out, which is a really powerful film about a mother-son relationship. Uh, the son is sort of a reckless New York character. The mother is uh, a slightly bohemian woman who is dying of cancer, uh, which was a very powerful thing for me to watch since your own mother had very recently, before you started shooting this, died of cancer. Um, it was a very powerful performance. I felt really blown away by how committed you were to the role, how ravaged uh, you were by the illness in the film, and how without vanity you approached this character. And it was kind of a stunning juxtaposition as I watched it and thought of you as Miranda Hobbs in Sex and the City and what a huge departure it was as a character. You know, there's so much I have in common with that character. And there's so much my I, my mother has in common with that character. 
um, that it felt so – it really did feel like a second skin. It really felt – I felt so comfortable. And the way they – you know, the environment on set was also very – you know. But but I think that, the, you know, it's interesting you use the word vanity because I actually think that maybe of of a lot of the people that I've played, the women that I've played, I think for me, Gail's vanity – was a little more I was a little more in touch with it than I was with other characters. I feel like Miranda, first of all, she's young. She doesn't she didn't seem young right. when I was playing it, but right. she's young. She looks great. Whatever. Right. Um and she has all these clothes. But I also feel like in a way, Miranda doesn't actually have any interest in clothing or jewelry or makeup. But the thing about Gail was she was dying, she was dying young. She was single. She was feeling, I think, very bereft not to have a lover, not to have a husband, feeling like her her son in some way was like her her husband lover her substitute in yeah. her boyfriend in a way that she knew was inappropriate, but she didn't know what else. She was desperate. Right. And I think her her loss of her own femininity, at, do you know what I mean? I think she was really – you know, putting on wigs because she'd lost her hair. And, and wore beautiful jewelry. And, jewelry and yeah. you know, and, and, and her cl- even her clothing. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't, yeah. it wasn't in any way, obviously, Sex in the City couture. You know, that movie really touched me, uh, James White, also, because I'm terrified of dying. Yes, me I too. I think about me it all too. the time. Me too, yeah. And I remember at your mom's funeral, her boyfriend talking about with such clarity and certainty because I could not believe what I was hearing and Uh, how beautiful it was, which was someone who had complete certainty that although this moment in their relationship of these two people on this planet had ended, he had no doubt that they would have other lives together and come together in other ways that they had been together before and that they would be together again. I yearn for that desperately in my life to, to really make peace with whatever comes next. Yeah. Have you ever had a kind of experience Not, like that? No, but my mother saw a couple of people and one of them was I don't know if they were looking at her hand or cart car, something and they they were telling her things that all of these things that the woman was telling her seemed totally on mark like amazingly so. And then they said the person said and then at this point you had an affair. This is when she was married to my dad. And my mom was like, no. And the woman kept saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. You had an affair like around this point, and, you know. And she kept saying, and finally and, – and, and the woman was so adamant. And my mother thought if she was more of a fake, she would get off this because I've told her over and over again, I, you know. And the woman was like, okay. And then she went on and she told her more stuff. And then the woman back, she said, oh, or you could have had a child. Did you have a child? And my mom said, oh, yeah. Oh, she said, oh, that's what it is. Sometimes, sometimes a child can look like a love affair. Wow. So in some ways, I was the affair, right, that got my mom out of her bad marriage. That is what having children is, in a way. Before we go, when is A Quiet Passion, the Emily Dickinson film So A Quiet Passion, right, the Emily Dickinson movie, it premiered in Berlin whenever that was, I guess in February maybe. Um, So you did the movie in German. We, we Imagine did. if you just did it whatever language. It's going to be, oh, okay. You're going to Berlin, everybody? <laughs> <laughs> 
But, you know, um, Greta Garbo did that and Marlena Dietrich, too. They would do an English language version and a German version at the same time on two different sets. That's now gotten into Toronto. So it'll be in the Toronto Film Festival. But also they're thinking maybe it's going to be in the New York Film Festival. So we're waiting to hear on that. I can't wait to see it. That's very exciting. And the Adderall Diaries is coming out, which is a small part, but. And yeah. what what is uh, before we go? Is there a play on the horizon? There is not a play on the horizon. I'm looking for something um, to direct. You know, I'm reading some things. Um, I'm connected to this movie called The Evening Hour, and I'm actually connected to a film called. Um, it's either going to be called Columbia or Columbia, Missouri. They don't know yet, and it's a tremendous. I'm very excited about it. It's um, Dennis O'Hare, the actor has written it. Nice. And he's also in it. And he and Amy Ryan and I play uh, a brother and two sisters. Um, Brian Dennehy is our dad. Paul Giamatti is our brother-in-law. And it is actually a story, a true story, about his sister's suicide in 2010. And uh, Anna Paquin is playing his sister... And she's also producing it, and we we barely see her, so it's it's kind of a very selfless. So you're thing the surviving siblings. We're the surviving siblings, and it's a kind of. I know this is a weird, sounds weird, but it, it's true. It's it's kind of like Little Miss Sunshine. It's sort of like a dysfunctional family on a road trip. It's all of us convening where she died and trying to go through her stuff and try and get through this experience. And there's actually a lot of humor in it. There's a lot of sort of. Irish American Catholic gallows humor. That sounds wonderful. It's really yeah. And Stephen Moyer, who's Anna Paquin's husband, is I love him. Is, I is directing him. it. That's great. Yeah. So I have eight million more questions to ask you. Will you come back? I would be one delighted. more time. I would be delighted. To there come are. Back. I mean, we didn't talk about Altman or Nichols or any right. of those great right. father right. directors. Right. Um, we didn't talk about. Um, you know, de Blasio, we didn't talk about public school. Should I opt out my son from statewide testing? Do you have a quick yes or no on that? I, I would not. But, but you know, I have no argument with people who do. Okay. I love you so much. <laughs> I, I love feel you. I'm so lucky to have had this time with you. Thank you for being here. If you want more information about my guests, go to the website, littleknownfactspodcast.com. I also wanted to tell you that there is now a new addition to the website. It is a button that says contributions. This podcast is a true labor of love, and I really, really want to keep doing it for a long time. So if you like listening as much as I love to do it, please feel free to contribute. It would mean the world to me. Also, on Twitter, you can find me at Alana Levine. Instagram is Little Known Facts Podcast, and on Facebook, Little Known Facts Podcast. You can also feel free to rate and review the show on the iTunes show page. This podcast is recorded at Hangar Studios in New York City. This episode was brought to you by Pro Media. Located in Times Square, Pro Media offers both production and post production services out of its beautiful studios in the heart of New York City. Pro Media Sound Vision. Find out more at promedia.nyc.